Oh shit, it's not the coin toss. Because Cam Akers got hurt, let's talk about that instead. Nice, I like that. What the fuck is going on, everyone? Welcome into the Long Game Dynasty podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about Dynasty fantasy football. I'm your host, Tarek Angry T. Benchuia. With me, as always, John Alexander, Trey Cryan, and Mitch Yates. Well, John, Mitch said it. We are not doing a coin toss today because we got hit with a bombshell yesterday. Uh, Really devastating news. Cam Akers on Tuesday morning got word that he tore his Achilles while training. So before we get into it, obviously just want to uh, give thoughts and prayers to Cam Akers. Uh, These guys work really hard um, and this is, you know, threatening to his livelihood. Um, So we're devastated for Cam, wishing him a full and speedy recovery. But, you know, as a Dynasty podcast, we kind of have to talk about what this does for his value as well as the guys coming up behind him in replacement. So, John, uh, talk a little bit about Cam Akers, what happened in your rankings, and what this does for Daryl Henderson. I think in this group, I was always a bit on the low side on Cam Akers. He was my running back 18, and I've I've kind of kicked him into the cellar. Uh, he, I've got him at running back 40, and that's simply because I'm not willing, I'm simply not willing to spend any assets to acquire him at this point. I'm more than happy when, if he is able to make a full recovery, I'm more than willing to pay that price in a year from now to go and get him. But right now I'm, I, it's too risky. Uh, there's not a lot of precedent for a guy making a full recovery. Um, we wish Cam the best, but right now I, I think I'd spend a third and that's about it. Uh, I think the more interesting question is where, do, what are we doing with Daryl Henderson? And, um, what I did is I kicked him up to running back 25 in my rankings. And the reason for that, when this was going on, um, I was I was in, in the middle of a dynasty startup and it's the 10th round and the next running back on the board was Ronald Jones. I'm like, you know what? I think I'd really like to have Daryl Henderson over Ronald Jones. And that's where he slotted in right there, running back uh, 25. And the main reason is I just don't see any competition behind Daryl Henderson at this point. I think that he's got to be the best running back in that backfield and um, he's going to get the opportunity so uh, maybe the argument we should be having is how does this affect Stafford because if I'm the Rams I'm this is just making me throw the ball more. Trey what is your perspective on Cam Akers where did you kick him down to and where did you kick Daryl Henderson up to? Yeah so I was definitely a lot higher on Cam Akers than John was before the injury I had him as my uh, running back eight uh, because I really believed with that um you know, that situation that he and that talent that he has that he could step into a, a top five type situation in LA. But I mean, with this kind of injury, there, as, as John said, there is not a, a track record of guys coming back healthy from this and being as effective as they were before. Um, maybe with advances in modern medicine, it's more likely than not that he comes back to full strength. I'd say it's probably about 50 50. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got him down into like the low end. Uh, running back two range. I've got him as my running back 23 in the ranks now behind uh, Trey Sermon, but ahead of a guy like Miles Gaskin. And for, uh, for Darrell Henderson, um, I mean, I'm projecting he'll get about 60% of the carries and they'll give the rest to the other guys behind him. It seems like that's sort of how uh, McVay was operating last year when he had Henderson as kind of the only healthy back in the room. And, um, I mean, that only really is good enough for him to get like low end RB2 numbers in my projections. And on top of that, I don't think he keeps the job long term. I I could definitely see Akers coming back and cutting into his volume or, you know, then bringing somebody else in to kind of cap his long term appeal. So, yeah, I've got him right there next to Ronald Jones, kind of like John uh, does. But um, I've got I think I would probably go Jones over Henderson at this point. So he he shakes out as my uh, running back 28. Yeah, Mitch, this is this is a tough situation. I mean, in terms of Cam Akers, I kicked him down to running back 24. Um, So he's a low end RB2 for me. And the reason I put him there is because I kind of like to think about a trade situation when I'm constructing my rankings and low end RB2 
is about a late first and early second uh, in in a super flex league in kind of my trade evaluations. So it's hard because I'm not going to pay a first for Cam Akers, but I'm definitely going to sell him for a first. But I'm also, if somebody offers Cam Akers to me for a second, I'm jumping on that immediately. So he's kind of living in that region for me that makes it really hard to evaluate. What do you think? Well, I think that's the most difficult thing for all of us is evaluating where he goes from here because, like, it's the conversation about will he recover from an Achilles? We don't know. There's not enough sample size. So this is really just, um, if you have him, I think it's absolutely fair to hit the panic button. And I'm not going to go back into John and Trey's arguments here. I think they cover that uh, perfectly. The problem is it's just brutal. Like, it, it just sucks for the guy and it... It sucks for anybody that has them because we are going to live in this. I don't know about Cam Akers for about probably a year and a half. Like it's not just this year. It's about next year when he comes back the first couple weeks, what his uh, what his timeshare is like. This is devastating for him. And so when we talk about Henderson, like the ball's in his court now, like what he does is up to him. So I would, I, I've, I've seen this bouncing around Twitter, it bounced around our group thread. Like, I would legitimately take Henderson for Acres straight up at this point because Henderson has an opportunity. What he does with it, I don't know. I, I mean, like, I'd say that's about 50-50. But Acres doesn't have the opportunity. He's got a very long road ahead of him. And, I mean, I, I'm not sticking around for that. If you're a contender with a really strong team and you just lost Cam Akers, I can see the argument for trading Akers for Henderson straight up. If you think that it's going to kind of patch your team back up to where you're still like a very strong contender. Um, Obviously, I would try to squeeze maybe a little bit more out of the Henderson owner, but that that assumes that the Henderson owner is also an Akers fan and isn't panicking about acres injury which everybody is right now so it's just a really tough situation i think we all kind of have henderson in that low-end rb2 range now i think none of us are super bullish on him becoming an rb1 you know we think that he's got an opportunity and he's got you know a path to volume here and we could see him climb up our rankings if he takes advantage of that opportunity but I mean, don't go out and and spend Cam Akers healthy prices for Darrell Henderson because that wasn't in the plans for for the Rams, right? They're they're likely going to add another running back, right? There's Xavier Jones behind him, Raymond Calais, right? So they'll probably sign a veteran, um, which could temper some expectations for Henderson. I mean, if they trade for someone huge like James Robinson or or something like that, or Tony Pollard, or you know, something just out of left field, then obviously that's probably going to crater Henderson's value a little bit back, back more back down to earth. But uh, any other kind of final thoughts on Cam Akers or Daryl Henderson? Just devastating situation. You mentioned some of the the cuffs behind uh, Henderson now, so Xavier Jones was extremely productive at SMU. Uh, came into the league last year, didn't really do much as a rookie. And uh, Jake Funk was their seventh round draft pick in uh, the, the 2021 Funk. draft. Yeah, out of uh, Maryland. And uh, he he's kind of my choice as the lead cuff at this point. He's got great athletic measurables, a 9.76 uh, relative athletic score to go along with that 29.3 BMI. So uh, if I was going to pick one of these cuffs, I would try to get Funk as a, uh, as a late rounder and a startup at this point. Yeah, my last tidbit here. Um, as a multiple Derry Hindi shareholder here, I really don't like the offers that I've been getting. I I think okay. that honestly, I'm going to be patient and allow this situation to work out into the season, get a couple games under his belt with like hopefully some good production there. And then I'm looking to flip him. Yeah, that's great insight, Mitch. So, you know, be patient, maybe kind of wait for people to start craving Darrell Henderson more, especially like when redraft season gets into full gear and he starts getting into that fourth round of redraft drafts, you know, his that could have an effect on his dynasty value. For sure. 
Okay, guys, let's get into this main content. We are talking about two things today. In the first half, we're talking about polarizing players. So shout out to our friend Kyle Bell, who kind of pitched this segment to us uh, way back when, when we were starting the podcast. We're talking about three players, and these players can be polarizing because they're far apart in our individual rankings or because they're kind of polarizing in the wider dynasty community. So we're talking about polarizing players in the first half. And then the second half, we're going to be talking about some insights from um, the startup draft that we did. So reflecting on the TLG startup draft, the show league that we just did, and kind of extracting some insights, more abstract theoretical insights about doing startups. All right. So let's start with this first half. Let's kick it off. The first polarizing player that we're going to talk about is Brandon Ayuk. So why is Brandon Ayuk polarizing? Well, this is a case where he's polarizing in our own rankings because there's a wide separation between John and Mitch on the one hand and Trey and myself on the other. John and Mitch are a little bit low on Ayuk compared to market and Trey and myself are, you know, closer to market value, which is, you know, a wide receiver two with wide receiver one upside. Additionally, you know, he's a second year player in which most of his kind of breakout performances in his rookie year came without very much target competition because of George Kittle and Debo Samuel's various injuries. So let's talk about Brandon Ayuk. John, why don't we throw it to you first? All right. Uh, let's start on the negative side, I guess. Why not? <laughs> so let's just start by saying I've got Debo at wide receiver 20, uh, 29, Ayuk at wide receiver 34, and Kittle and this is the critical part, is my tight end one. Uh, the main, the most important thing we need to point out here is that they only appeared in four games together last season. And since they were relatively early in Ayuk's rookie campaign, and I'm talking about weeks four through seven, I don't think it's very useful to use those numbers as a baseline for this year. I just don't, because he was a different player in the second half of the season. The most important thing I want to say here is I think Kittle's going to be the focal point of the offense, and I expect Ayuk and Debo will likely have similar production if they are both healthy. If Debo's injured, well, we know what Ayuk can do based on last season. Uh, but that's not safe. We, we can't assume that's going to be the case. I think it's entirely plausible that neither guy, Debo nor Ayuk, is going to get to 1,000 yards receiving this year. And that's why I both have them in the wide receiver three range of my rankings. It makes a lot of sense to me to have them rank near each other because they're both going to be dealing with similar uncertainty at that QB position, because we don't know, is Garoppolo going to be playing? Is it Trey Lance, a rookie? We're not sure. Um, we're going to find out, but they're both going to be dealing with that. What doesn't make sense to me is that Ayuk is going a whole bunch of spots before Debo in one QB, DLF ADP. We're talking Ayuk's going 47, Debo's going 82. That's 35 spots. And I think Ayuk is ranked wide receiver 19 and Debo wide receiver 36. I get that Ayuk has the wide receiver one upside. We saw it last season. I believe it. Uh, I think he's got that ceiling. Debo doesn't. Debo's the the gadget guy. He's uh, more of like uh, he's like a receiver running back kind of guy. So I get that argument. Uh, but I don't think that that dis making that distinction is enough to justify having them rank so separately. At least not yet. I'm not ready, based on what I've seen, to anoint Ayuk as the guy. Um, I just think that we need more evidence. Okay, Trey, uh, I'll, I'll kind of throw it to you first on on kind of the other end of the debate. I mean, I think that John kind of highlighted there at the end that he thinks Ayuk has that wide receiver one ceiling. He's just kind of waiting to see it. Um, you have Ayuk at wide receiver 18 right now, I believe. So right around DLF market price. What is your perspective on Ayuk and, and why you have him ranked in concert with the market? Yeah, so I, I definitely get where John's coming from. I mean, I've, I, as you guys know, I've done the projections uh, exercise for this year, and, and it is hard to kind of see Ayuk clearing that thousand yard receiving mark with the competition and the, the target share that's going to go to Kittle and uh, Debo Samuel. So, you know, I, I recognize that, but, you know, we already saw Ayuk as a rookie come in and demonstrate that wide receiver one upside. And uh, he only played 12 games, but with you know, below average quarterback play, he finished as the number 16 wide receiver in points per game with 15.4. On top of that, he had a 23% target share as a rookie. And yeah, I know Debo and Kittle were out, but 23% target share tells me that this guy is really, really good. And 
San Francisco just got an improvement at quarterback. I think we're going to see Trey Lance a lot sooner rather than later. And this Shanahan system is capable of putting up two wide receivers and tight end because we've seen it do that before too. So I've got him at wide receiver 18 right now, and that feels a lot more like his floor than his ceiling to me. Yeah, I I, I feel like I'm with John, but like not really because I, <laughs> I, I'm definitely not there with the Debo stuff. Really, what what's doing it for me is the the Trey Lance and the Jimmy G, the the quarterback controversy that's going to happen this year. I think uh, Jimmy G is probably going to get the start, and I think uh, Trey Lance is going to take over shortly. But when he does, let's not forget about his rushing upside, and let's also not forget that this is Kyle Shanahan with Trey, uh, who who just drafted Trey Sermon as well. I think there's going to be a lot of rushing touchdowns that are vacated from the wide receivers, and I do see some regression, like a lot of regression with Ayuk, because uh, those passing targets are getting healthy, Kittle and Debo, and we have a, an entirely new rushing offense as well. Uh, Mostert's still there as well. Like, there are all of a sudden a lot of mouths to feed when there was only one mouth to feed. So his target share, that's going to be a really important thing to look at this year yeah. is with all those people healthy what does this target share look like? And that's why I'm I'm backing off. I, I'm at 33. I don't think that that's like a horrible ranking. I just think that's where he should be, obviously. Yeah, okay. I mean, so we talked about this on the NFC West preview episode. Um, I think Cooper Adams for DLF did a really great article um, about Brandon Ayuk and like the case for him being uh, close to a wide receiver one in Dynasty. In the four games that Brandon Ayuk played with Debo Samuel and George Kittle, if you just extrapolate those four games that everyone is worried about, um, Brandon Ayuk came out with 11.9 PPR points per game. So with 11.9 PPR points per game, kind of between that 45 and 55 yards per game, if you extrapolate that out, his rookie season would put him in company with people like Des Bryant, Calvin Ridley, DJ Moore, Brandon Cooks, Calvin Johnson. This is all what Cooper Adams, the research he did. There are some misses in there, Justin Blackman and Kendall Wright, hey. right? But just taking those four games and extrapolating them out, which is something you never want to do, but the reason I think it's a worthy exercise is because these are the four games that everybody is worried about with Brandon Ayuk, those being when Debo and Kittle played. He keeps really elite company if we consider that it was his rookie year. And then, you know, we know that he is a really good receiver because we trust Matt Harmon's charting, right? So Matt Harmon demonstrates that Brandon Ayuk is a 90th percentile separator when it comes to his reception perception charting. So taking those two things together makes me kind of lean more toward Trey with the clear wide receiver one upside. Um, but I, I also want to concede to both John and Mitch that I don't think it's an absurd stance to take that it, it's difficult to see the target share shaking out to, you know, above 22, 23% with Debo Samuel and George Kittle there. Um, I just think like his talent and the way that he's used on the field kind of profiles as like a target hog type outside wide receiver. You know, so I'm kind of betting on that upside, but I can see when you're projecting out the target share, it can be difficult to get him there, right? But I think situations change all the time. And if Trey Lance is better than some combination of Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard, you know, I'm 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 gonna be excited about Brandon Ayuk. Oh, that's a guarantee. I mean, there <laughs> absolutely the quarterback play is gonna be better. I He's going to be better at running than the than those guys too. I I think that he's hopefully as the number you know three overall pick, he's going to be better throwing than them too. But you know we'll see. Absolutely, he, he should be. I don't I don't disagree with either you or Trey here. Um, I think that if there if we're going based on ceiling, Ayuk is the clear dominant receiver on this offense. But I think the likely outcome is that we're going to see a similar production between Ayuk and Debo if we combine rushing yards and receiving yards. And okay. that Kittle is going to be the primary receiving option. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, shout out DF Bean Counter, who on Twitter tweeted that Debo Samuel had a total of two completed air yards last year. Not per reception, total. Two. Two yards. So <laughs> this is a running back. <laughs> uh, and, and and Mitch Mitch has him ranked as such, right? You got, you got Debo down in the 50s, I think, Mitch. Yeah, man. He's a running back. Good for him. 
Shoot for the stars. <laughs> not a big fan. All right. But we're not talking about Debo Samuel. Let's move on to our second polarizing player, and that is Jalen Hurts, quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Why is he polarizing? All right. Our ranks have Mitch high on him, John low on him. Trey and I are in the middle. However, my QB 13 ranking, I think, is a little bit more downward facing. Whereas I believe from what Trey has said, he he can see, you know, that, that creeping up. Additionally, just forgetting about our ranks, he's a polarizing player because he's got this immense upside balanced with questions about his accuracy, his job security, right? We know that they've tested the waters on Deshaun Watson. At least that's been the reports. They tested the waters on trading up to the second overall pick to maybe uh, draft Zach Wilson. But when the Jets didn't bite, they decided to trade down. So they're they're testing, right? They're not completely committed to Jalen Hurts. So I think that's kind of why we we see him as polarizing not only in our group but in the broader dynasty community. So Mitch, I'm going to throw it to you first because you have Jalen Hurts at QB eight, so you are the most bullish on him. Oh man, I thought I had him at nine. Well, eight eight's fine too. We'll go with that. Um, my rationale behind this is that he could be a top three quarterback based on his rushing upside. And, uh, well, we're extrapolating four games, right? Like, that's that's his shtick, too. Uh, four games that he played last year, uh, he averaged one more rushing yard than Lamar Jackson. That's just part of his game. But he was also able to put up uh, 300 passing yards in two of his four games, so we know he can do that, too. Yeah, the 52% completed pass rating, that's, that's not preferred. But, again, I mean, we're looking at the small sample size, and what I like is that... They surrounded him with some wide receivers. Um, hmm. He's got that rushing upside. And the team objectively looks better than it did last year. So he's got the upside of being a top three, top five quarterback. And he's being taken, what, what's his ADP, like 12, something like that, maybe 10. Any quarterback that's being drafted that range, I don't believe has that ceiling and so that's why he's one of those players he, he could be a league winner yeah and I, I think he he really should be like our poster uh child for this uh polarizing discussion because uh there's just a huge range of outcomes for Jalen Hurts and I completely agree with Mitch that I do think he's got that top five upside and I think it's also totally possible that he loses the job at the end of uh this year and they bring in competition for next year I mean we've already heard uh Deshaun Watson rumors about him going to Philadelphia right uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the the 52% completion percentage, I think that kind of plays into some of those rumors as well. Like, if this guy can't really get it done with his arm, then the Eagles aren't going to give him that long-term job. So, uh, I mean, there's reason to believe he's better as a thrower than what he showed last year. I mean, at OU, his last year in college, he had 69.7% completion percentage to go along with an 11.3 yards per attempt. So that was, you know, top 95th percentile in the country, which is awesome. Uh, and you know what? For fantasy, I don't need him to win a Super Bowl. I just need fantasy points. So, yep. you know, for projections, it's really easy to have him come out as a top 10 quarterback. He came out as quarterback nine for me in my projections. Uh, but with all of that risk of him, you know, not being the long-term answer, that's why I've dropped him down to my uh, my QB 12 in startup ranks right behind uh, Trey Lance. John, I I like Jalen Hurts. I, I think I was probably higher on him than a lot of people coming out of college. I think he is a really good pro. I think he can be a starting quarterback in the NFL. But I'm worried about him getting replaced, especially considering how much draft capital the Eagles have acquired in 2022. I think it's there's a really high chance that they're going to be testing those waters and that Jalen Hurts has a really short leash. So is that why you have him the lowest out of all four of us? Let's be clear. I've got him at QB 20, so that's firmly at the end of uh, wow. quarterback two range, right? So uh, let's be clear on what I think Jalen Hurts is. I think he is an exquisite fantasy option for this year. And beyond that, He's not an NFL quarterback. He's going to be replaced Oof. is my expectation. So I think you get him and you try to win a championship this year. But uh, beyond that, I don't think so. Here's why. He played, uh, we're talking about three solid games here that he played, right? So he took over for Wentz, I think, in week 
13, and then he played 14, 15, 16, and then in 17, he was... Uh, he was benched because he, he was benched <laughs> for a guy who I can't even remember, right? So in let's just talk about those three games for a second here. He averaged 80 yards per game rushing, which is fantastic. Okay, that's great. But you know what? He had 55% accuracy on those passes. Let's talk about up. a different guy. 50, yeah, it went up from 52 for the entire season. I gave him the 55. Look, <laughs> even in 2019, Jameis Winston had 60% accuracy, and that was before laser corrective surgery, and he couldn't keep his job. He is not going, he's, this guy is a career backup. He couldn't keep his job from Tua, who you all have probably ranked below Jalen Hurts at this point. At Alabama, he lost his job to Tua, and I expect that's what's going to happen next year. They're going to they're gonna see what they've got in Jalen Hurts this year, and Trey's right. The range of outcomes is huge. I could be wrong, and this guy's going to be a running back, or sorry, a quarterback one for years to come, but I think based on this accuracy, they're going to they're gonna want to replace him, and that's what I'm expecting to happen. But hey, if you've got him this year, write him. You might win that chance. Even in one QB, he might be a league winner. Oh. I, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, John, John said a lot that I that I don't like, and a lot that I do like. So, I first of all, if we're if we're talking about Jameis Winston, like Jameis Winston's a statue, man. That guy runs as fast as Mr. Krabs. Yeah, it's not even relevant to Jalen Hurts. Yeah, that has that has nothing to do. Like Jame, Jameis does not have that ability. Uh, but Hurts, uh, yeah, I you know there's not actually a really great success rate for second round quarterbacks, like. You know, that draft cap is way different than a second round, well, anything else. A second round. Yeah, and it was a late second, too. Yeah, that that is replaceable AF. And you know what, man? I understand that, and I'm willing to just go with it because, like, the ball's in his court, like I said with the last guy, like, or with uh, Daryl Henderson, right? He has the opportunity. They're going to give him that opportunity. And if he flounders and if he sucks, well, that sucks. But maybe uh, if you are a Jalen Hurts manager, you might be, get ahead of that and you might be able to still get some value midseason if somebody is trying to win that championship. Yeah, well, Mitch, hang on. So I, I think the question is, is what can he really do to like keep this job beyond this year, right? Like, Because that seems to be the main sticking point that all of us have. So, right. I mean, yeah. is it possible that he puts up like a Lamar Jackson MVP type season this year? I mean, because that seems to be like what we're all sort of counting on for like a QB8 level or higher performance. And if that's the case, are the Eagles really going to bring in somebody else to replace them? I, I I have a hard time believing that. Well, the Eagles don't give a fuck about fantasy football, though. So, like, if the Eagles go, uh, what, like six and how many games there? Eleven? <laughs> yeah, six and eleven, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but he puts up a QB eight season. Like, dude, they don't... That, he sure is no, sure. I know, I know, I know. I know the Eagles aren't playing fantasy football, but if he is, you know, providing that locker room presence as a leader, which reportedly he is a fantastic right. leader and presence in that locker room and the team rallies around him and yeah, maybe they go slightly above 500. Is it really that hard to believe uh, that the Eagles wouldn't, you know, bring him back the next year and try to run it back and improve on that, especially with the weapons they've brought in around him with Devonte Smith and Jalen Rager? I'm with you, Trey. But I do agree with both Trey and Mitch that as long as he has that job, he's going to be, and, and John, John said this, he's going to be amazing for fantasy because he's a Lamar Jackson, kind of almost Lamar Jackson level runner. All right. <laughs> Lamar Jackson um, light. <laughs> right. Lamar. I, w I was about to make the comp and then I was like, okay, nobody's Lamar Jackson. Listen, man, if you spend any time in Philly, you'll know that these guys are full of shit, dude. Like everything they're saying is full of shit. Who knows if they're supporting? This is all smokescreen, man. Those Philly mind games. Yeah, I mean, I don't care about Philly fans. You fucking hate the Eagles, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, our third and final polarizing player that we're going to talk about is Ezekiel Elliott uh, running back for the Dallas Cowboys. Why is he polarizing? So this is a guy who has a DLF ADP of RB9, and that's been rising over the last couple of months. That was lower a couple of months ago. The perspective on him, I think, is rising in the community, but he's still sticking around RB13 in our consensus. And I think Mitch recently bumped him up, and that's why he's kind of like moved a little bit up um, in our rankings recently. So this is less about our rankings as far as him being a polarizing player and more about his 
elite upside on the one side that we've seen because of the offense that he's in and the age cliff that we all know is coming on the other side. And he already has a lot of touches accumulated in his short NFL career. All right, Trey, I'm going to throw it to you first. What is your perspective on Ezekiel Elliott? Why is he polarizing and where are you falling on this? Well, so first off, uh, Zeke's birthday is uh, this Thursday, July 22nd. So he just turned 26. So uh, happy birthday to you, uh, Zeke. And um, for for any given average 26-year-old running back, as a dynasty manager, we should expect about three more years of production. And based on all of the tread on Zeke's tires, it feels like two max, mm-hmm. you know? So... I, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm fading pretty hard on Zeke. Uh, um, there, there's a tier that I have of guys that are, uh, are about his age. It's four running backs, including Zeke. It's him, Eckler, Mixon, and uh, Aaron Jones. And I've got them all in that same uh, 14 to 17 area. And I think just based on the risk with Zeke, I might have to move him down to the bottom of that tier. But the the flip side is you know, the, the huge upside for, for 2021. I mean, it's real easy to project a top five year for Zeke based on the amount of volume he's going to get in that offense. And I don't think any of us would be surprised if he did finish this year in that top five ballpark. Now, Mitch, you've got him up at RB12. Uh, did did you move him up recently? Am I right about that? I'm not sure. I, I feel like I've had him up there for a minute. Um, at least since like mid June, uh, because I came to the conclusion then I think it was around when we were doing the uh, NFC East episode. Was that our first episode? Yeah, it was. Well, well, yeah, man, he's been there for a minute then because uh, I view Zeke as a league winner for a contender. Like his value is very specific to a contender, though, because what Trey mentioned yeah. that three year window looks like a two-year window, maybe a year-and-a-half window just because of all the tread on the tires. But, like, let's break this down real quick. Like, it, it's his, like he's been money in the bank. His first year, he was second, second, 13, third year, five, fourth year, three, fifth year, nine. That's, his, that, that's what he finished running back-wise in PPR. Like, that's pretty good. I'd say. I mean, that's... Yeah, and Mitch, arguably, the offense is better right. now. And so if we're worried about the Cowboys' passing game or fucking Tony Pollard, I guess, like we shouldn't be because, yeah, Tony Pollard looked good at times, but he is no threat to be taken over Zeke's workload. And so Zeke, in my opinion, can win you a championship this year if you're going for it. And that's why his price tag is so weird. If not, that might be the polarizing thing to me is his price tag, because if you are a Zeke manager, you're not selling for anything less than like a running back five overall because you know that's what he's worth to a contender right and john you know i'm gonna throw it to you and you can choose to respond to this or not respond to it but one thing i want to bring up is that the dallas cowboys are on hard knocks this year and i don't care what you think about hard knocks invariably he is going to get a value bump from hard knocks it happens every single year it's kind of like rookie fever right no matter what Rookie fever is going to affect everyone in some kind of way. And hard knocks is the same way. Like, I feel like Ezekiel Elliott's value is going to keep rising because they're going to hype the shit out of him on HBO. Yeah. And and it's all about the brand, right? So the more times he shows his feed me tattoo on his belly, the higher the ranking is going to (laughs) go. I don't have a real strong opinion on Ezekiel Elliott. I agree with everything y'all have been saying. Um, RB16 for me, if you're a contender, you should get him. If you're not a contender, get rid of him. Here's why. Uh, I, I, not a lot of people who listen to the pod know this, but I, I was a math teacher for 11 years. So I did a little bit of math before uh, the pod here. And I added together the rushing attempts for college plus the NFL, right? Okay. And I compared him to King Henry, who also came out in the 2016 draft. So when I added up all of the rushing attempts, King Henry had just under 1,800, 1,800 which is a lot. He's a workhorse, right? That's what you expect. Zeke, Ezekiel Elliott, is over 2,000 rushing attempts. Over 9,000. Holy fuck. (laughs) 2,000. Over 2,000 rushing attempts in his college plus. And this doesn't even account for the receiving, which King Henry doesn't get. So he's had a lot of touches. We're not talking about a little bit of tread. We're talking about a lot of tread. Mm -hmm. Forget about the age cliff. This thing's going to happen. If you've got him, great. Write him to the end. But if if you don't need him for this year, then please sell him. 
I do have one last tidbit, though. <laughs> have you guys noticed that, like, if you're trying to look, if you have a contender, uh, that if you're looking to see who's got Zeke, no matter who it is in whatever league you're in, the Zeke manager has a goddamn Cowboys star in their profile picture. <laughs> They're Cowboy fans, yes. And I know that his price <laughs> is like twice as high, and I don't even bother sending a trade That's offer. That's the Cowboys fan bump, man. They've got Dak. They've got CD and they've got Zeke and that's their whole team. They got nothing else. Well, look, Dak, Dak Prescott belongs in that top, you know, six tier or whatever. Go. And uh, it's, it's funny because like, you know, we say Zeke's a polarizing player and uh, the market's got him at running back nine, but all of us are like significantly lower on him. So, uh, you know, for having two Cowboys fans in this pod, I don't think we're all, any of us are going to have uh, shares of Zeke this year. Yeah, look, and I mean, as one of those Cowboys fans, I've said multiple times I care about my dynasty teams more than I do about the Cowboys at this point. Yes, so sir. I am, I am a bad fan. Who cares? <laughs> um, for the record, fuck them Cowboys. <laughs> John, are you a Chargers fan yet? John, John's uh, a Huskers fan. Right, go, go Big Red. That's the other thing our podcast fans don't know. Go Big Red. Yes. Nebraska I like fan. yeah. Uh, our podcast fans don't know that John is a math teacher, so he he did a little arithmetic. <laughs> was a was able to count past two thousand. Everybody, big big applause for John Alexander, Professor Alexander. Thank you. <laughs> All right, that does it for our polarizing players segment. Brandon Ayuk, Jalen Hurts, and Ezekiel Elliott. Hopefully, I got some mileage out of that conversation. Let's move into our halftime segment, and we're keeping it light for this halftime. As a reminder, our halftime segment is a weekly segment in which I ask our panelists a question, and they respond with an argument-based answer. And I, every single time, on the dot, arbitrarily choose <laughs> who had the best argument. This week, the question is, what is your favorite alcoholic beverage? I don't think it's a secret that on this pod... You know, we like to enjoy an alcoholic beverage often when we are recording. And you also have to tell me why it should be my favorite alcoholic beverage. All right. So, Trey, starting with you. Oh, man, you're going <laughs> to I'm going to get crushed this week. <laughs> Miller Lite. Well, Miller Lite. All right, man. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the pod listeners may not know about me that I, I moved to uh, Boston four years ago. Uh, from Texas. And, uh, you know, since I moved to Boston, I've really adapted to my new surroundings I've really started exploring new England and, and what the area has to offer. So, uh, Tarek, I'm going to try to convince you probably unsuccessfully that the new England double IPA, Oh, Jesus <laughs> oh no. you're about to get crushed, bro. <laughs> that hazy citrusy goodness is is the the best go-to drink that you could possibly choose i've got i've got a uh a mini mallard from uh trillium right now it's one of the best uh one of the best breweries in new england probably in the country and uh yeah it's it's really hitting the sweet spot it's uh it's making the takes come out extra smooth and extra crisp so uh look uh the Trillium, Treehouse, the New England IPAs, you can't go wrong. All right, pour one out for Trey's chances this week. <laughs> John, your turn. And I prepared this drink like an hour ago before this pod. Uh, and just just for this, it's you got to keep it simple. And honestly, I don't give a fuck what you think about this. It's all about just a little bit of whiskey and some 7-Up. That's all you need. Oh, my but, God. But, hey, cautionary tale here. Two or three is your max. Two or three, you're a lovemaking machine. Any more than that, you're likely to underperform ADP. <laughs> underperform something P. Yeah. Uh I nearly ruined my best friend's wedding. So, you know, just be careful. A little bit of whiskey, a little bit of seven up. That's all you need. And, but and that that best friend was Kyle, right? The one who gave us this uh the idea for the polarizing players. It's all right, Kyle. He said almost. Kyle told me Kyle told me he didn't even notice, and that's good because I don't remember, so we're all good. I, oh, I am dying over here, John. <laughs> <laughs> whiskey and seven up and a double IPA. Mitch, please save me. <laughs> I have no plans to do any of that. Look, when I when I when I saw this is what we were doing for halftime, I'm I'm the bartender. This is literally I don't know if you guys know this, but I used to be a math teacher and I decided to start bartending. <laughs> after I uh, moved to Boston. After I moved to Boston and started pouring out fucking New England IPAs. Listen, <laughs> listen, man. There's one drink that you'll ever need. It's whiskey. 
Get the fuck out of here with your 7-Up. Get the fuck out of here with your New England IPAs, man. We are from Texas. We are cowboys, even if we don't like that shitty team. Yeehaw. And we drink whiskey. We drink whiskey. That's all you need. People used to ask me, like, oh, you're a you're a craft cocktail bartender. What do you make for yourself at home? My answer? Well, I pour some whiskey in a glass, and I sit down on the couch, and I fucking enjoy it. Whiskey is all you need, baby. All right. Well, okay, Mitch wins by default because, you know, I, I always go with my biases. That's just, you know, that's just my thing. Look, Mitch Mitch is barreling ahead in the standings. Look, I like a, a nice, neat glass of whiskey. I love beer, but I'm not a huge fan of double IPAs. I can do a pale ale. I can do a nice, light, citrusy single IPA, but a double IPA is too much for me. And whiskey and Seven Up, what the fuck are you talking, <laughs> bruh? I will give the right answer. My favorite drink is a whiskey sour with egg white. You hit all the notes there. You get your citrus, you got your sweet, you got your bitter, you got your creamy from the egg white. That's the best drink. Mitch knows it's true. I know it's true. Everybody knows it's true. Creamy goodness. Mitch, wait, wait, you wait. win. Can I wait? Can I donate? Can I donate the point to you, Tarek? Yes. Uh, too I, bad I'm for that. No. No, I right, can't do that. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Congratulations well, on your first points, Tarek. It's you know it took you long enough. This is what episode sixteen. So uh, welcome to the party. You can officially have it. I bequeath it to you. Okay, cool. I'm taking it then. All right. That means Mitch has seven points. Trey has five points. John's got three, and I've got one that was bequeathed by Mitch. But who's counting? But who's counting? All right, let's sober up and get to the second half where we're going to be talking about something a little bit more theoretical, and that's Startup Insights. So we talked about this the last couple of weeks. We recently did the Show League Startup. It was a 30-round, super flex, tight end premium, 16 bench spots, five taxi spots. It was a, it was a beast to get through. And what we've done is we've reflected on that process and we've extracted some insights that we want to share with our listeners based on the experience of doing that startup. All right. And the first insight is coming to us from your boy, Marls Mitch Yates. Marls in charge, baby. Uh, but my, my strategy here is trade and pivot. So when you go into the draft, you got to have the loosest of plans, but you still got to have a plan. So what is that plan? Contending, uh, productive struggle, staying put and soaking up value. You, you got to have like a tentative plan. And so you also need to have players that you want in each uh, in each round based on the strategy that you're implementing. So every single round, it's fair for you to ask yourself out loud, is this going to plan? And if it's not, well, uh, it's time to adjust. You know, you may have thought you were going productive struggle, traded a few back. And then all of a sudden, some guys drop to you and you're like, oh, shit, well, I need to get back in here and contend. So how do we do that? How do we trade? How is this market defined? Well, I, I think that really can be defined by other trades that happen in the market. And I remember uh, Trey offered a trade that uh, I think John accepted. I don't remember who accepted, but I was like, hey, uh, if anybody else would like to uh, do that same trade, um, I'm also down to offer that, right? Like you can piggyback off of other people's stuff or um, you can reset the market. You can reset that precedent. Um, but ultimately what I'd like to talk about is trade board manipulation. So once the pieces start to fall into place, you're getting a better idea of which direction you want to head. Um, it's very important for me to, to just say this in this space. It's okay to trade back and it's okay to trade back up. Um, if you're going to get your guy, um, everybody's available to everybody on that draft board for a price. So if you want to trade back and get value, but you see better value trading back up, by all means, go for it. So I, I think I took that strategy in mind. I traded back out of the second and uh, immediately traded back in for, for pits when I realized um, that I took Jonathan Taylor at the, at the seventh overall, and I wanted to keep it young, maybe produ uh, productive struggle, maybe contend. But it... it you know, you, you just kind of got to live by the ebb and flow, you know? I'm going to kind of zoom in on kind of what you said there in terms of having a plan going into the draft, right? So based on maybe where you're picking, whether or not you want to edge super young and kind of go toward productive struggle or, you know, contend immediately. But 
remain water, see how the board is falling. And if players that are more contender fall to you in a value spot, then make the pivot really quickly. And like Mitch said, even once players are already picked, you can still make trades for those players, right? You just kind of have to like get in the ear of people that have drafted those players who are maybe you see their team construction kind of shaking out weirdly and you think, hey, I bet this player would have rather taken a receiver there than a running back if he would have gone back and done it again. And you can take advantage of that team construction kind of coming out wonky on the other side. Trey, John, what do you think about this kind of pivot philosophy? Well, I heard Mitch say something, uh, not on the pod today, but in the past that I really, that was really enlightening to me that if you got a guy, he's a lot cheaper before he gets picked. As soon as somebody else takes him, he's a lot more expensive. So I like Mitch's strategy here, like have a board, have some guys that you got in general range and go get them. Because once somebody else takes them, it's going to be a whole lot harder to get them. And I thought that was a really good insight. So thank you, Mitch. You're welcome. And that's a great example with Pitts. That's why I moved back in there for Pitts, because I know the second somebody drafts Pitts, I know how much I'm going to have to spend trying to trade for that guy. And so while doing that, to just add the final cap on the strategy here, I took uh, Jonathan Taylor and Pitts, and then I pumped the brakes. I had acquired four, or I'm sorry, three fourth round picks and two fifth round picks, knowing that I could wait and see what value fell at that point, and then make that final decision whether I was committing to the contend or committing to the uh, productive struggle. And so, like I said, it all starts with a plan, and then you tear that plan up and you create a new one, but you have to be prepared, and you have to know what players uh, like constitute a contender or what players constitute a productive struggle. I think it's very important to start off with that information. Yeah. And Mitch, to that point, I do think that there's definitely some, you know, benefit to your team long-term by just, you know, being okay with just targeting value where you can get it. And then, you know, adjusting to kind of fit your roster to whichever plan you choose, because maybe it's not the same plan that you wanted to do going into the, the draft. And if you end up coming out with like a little bit of a mixed outcome, then you can at least like capitalize on all that, all that value that you, you know, accumulated during the draft to, you know, come up with a cohesive contender or productive struggle strategy going forward. Yeah. And let me respond to something that John and Mitch were just talking about, which was once a player gets drafted, their price immediately goes up. Sure. I think in general, that is 100% true. What I was saying that kind of contests that a little bit is going in and looking at each individual team, even if they've already drafted a player, right? So like going in, looking at their team at the five or six players that they've drafted, and if their team construction is shaking out a little bit weird, like they've got way too many receivers or something, even if they already drafted that receiver, you can kind of exploit that go message the uh that owner or that manager and say hey i see you've kind of drafted like four receivers in a row and i really would like one of those receivers and i have this running back that i think would benefit your team construction really well that is possible i don't think that i i think you're right 100 that once a player is drafted his it's much harder to acquire them, but I don't think that should shut you down from inquiring if you think that trade would make your team better, right? So always explore those options. That's why you are the trade sensei. This is the reason right here. <laughs> I just disagree with that fundamentally, though, because I know that if somebody... I mean, look, Mitch, I made two trades after after players were already picked in our TLG show league draft. I made two trades for those players while the draft was still going on. So I'm saying it's possible, and I don't think I overpaid for either of them. Well, that's fair. I just think that once a uh, a manager drafts a player, that indicates literally their value of that player. And so immediately they're going to want more than what they just spent on him. I think. Oh, that's... yeah. And and I, I, I don't know if this was clear enough. I actually completely agree with you, but I think that it happens all the time where managers regret picks that they just made, right? And they may not want to admit that they regret it, but if you can find the managers that because of the way their team construction is shaking out, maybe they could have picked a running back there instead of a receiver or vice versa or whatever position you want to take, 
there are opportunities for you to help people kind of quote unquote correct their mistakes. Uh, find the tilt. Um, Find them, right? Exploit them, and honestly, that's actually probably a, advice for me. It makes sense why I made two trades for players that are uh, that were already picked because I'm kind of a tilt master. You know, y'all call me a trade sensei or trade wizard or whatever. I am even more of a tilt sensei, a tilt wizard, right? So I'm willing to always kind of correct errors that I feel like I may have made. I have very little pride, guys. <laughs> You do you do tilt. I've been in a number of drafts with you and you've tilted in literally every single one. So I cannot emphasize how little pride I have. <laughs> Always tilting. Every time. All right. Yeah. Okay. So thanks, Mitch. I, I, I really think that's important insight to not only have a plan, but it needs to be loose and you need to be willing to pivot and be fluid and kind of manipulate the board to your new plan. All right. So this next insight is going to come from me. And basically, it's really simple. It's that the startup draft is your first data point for trying to figure out what the tendencies and desires are for your league mates, especially for the league mates that you've never played Dynasty before. So you can learn a lot about a Dynasty player from how they're behaving, especially in the first four, five, six, seven rounds of a startup. Here are some things that you can learn. This is a manager who prefers proven production over young upside. That's one thing. So maybe after the draft, you can go offload some of your proven production for some of their younger upside because that's what they've demonstrated in the startup. Another thing, there's someone who throws around their future rookie picks because they want to strengthen their contending roster. Say after the draft, you feel like you're more of a productive struggle than a contender. Go find those people and acquire their rookie picks because they're all in on contending. Another thing you could learn, this, this manager is someone who will forego concerns about positional scarcity and they'll just draft best player available. So they'll stack receiver upon receiver upon receiver because that's where the value is and they don't necessarily care that running back and quarterback are more scarce. You could learn that someone who leans really heavily on youth will reach for youth, right? So that's kind of the inverse of the first thing I brought up. There are some players out there that will pay a premium for a 22-year-old receiver, right? So understanding those tendencies and doing it early is key for finding kind of compatible trade partners with you after the startup. Whether that's as a long-term trade partnership, like me and John have a really long-term trade partnership in all of our leagues, or if it's just to kind of align trajectories immediately after the startup. Because, you know, sometimes in a startup, you make a pick that doesn't align with the overall trajectory of your team, kind of like what Mitch was talking about, but you couldn't pass on it because the value is just mm -hmm. too good, mm -hmm. right? Like Antonio Brown fell to you, you know, in the 13th round, right? O Odell Beckham Jr. fell to you in the 12th round. And you can get adequate value and align your trajectory by identifying those tendencies and other managers and kind of making trades later on down the road. So to wrap it up, use the startup as your first data point to understanding your league mates. Yeah, Tarek, I really, I really like that, man. I, I mean, I, I think what you're, you're kind of getting at here is that, uh, that actions speak louder than words, right? So somebody may tell you that they're like really going for it this year, really, uh, you know, just going to punt like for a year or two or whatever. But, uh, you know, who they pick really tells you the truth. Right. And, and, mm. you know, lets you know if like, that's really what they're intending or not. So, um, yeah, I, I like that because it, you know, it kind of introduces you to, you know, maybe you've never played in a fantasy league with these guys before, right. You don't know what their tendencies are. And, uh, um, you know, those first data points are going to be crucial to figuring out like what your trade relationship is going to look like, uh, kind of immediately, but also long-term. Yeah, I, I definitely get that as well. And I think that it's important because in my experience, 95% of the trades you offer get reject, rejected straight out. You're not looking for, an, for somebody to accept your trade offer. You're looking for a counter. You want them to counter. You want to start the dialogue. And so you, you've hit it on the nose there. If you can find something that you find that they have presented in the past that will start that dialogue, get, uh, give them some incentive to give you a counter, then you've already won because that's the key here is getting that counter. 
and to not get the straight rejection that I've gotten so many times in the past. Thank you for not rejecting me every single time. I do appreciate that. So many times. Man, on the flip side of that, though, isn't it the worst feeling in the world when you send a trade and it gets accepted immediately and you're like, ah, uh, <laughs> shit. I done shit. fucked up. Did I, did, I, <laughs> did I go too hard on this one? But yeah, man, Tarek, I, I, I do love that. Like, it's like you said, actions speak louder than words. And you can use this draft board as a reference point to people's values, at least for a couple months yeah, <laughs> until right. things change. Yeah. But like if somebody's willing to take somebody in the fourth round, like chances are your 10th and 15th round pick together are not going to equal that player. So it can help you identify a better trade because literally you know exactly how they feel about them based on the position that they drafted that player. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, like, in that league, I had Cam Akers. Um, so that was something that I kind of had to reckon with over the last 24 hours. And I did make a move regarding Cam Akers. But since then, I've been kind of transitioning from being a contender to trying to go into, like, a quick rebuild or productive struggle. But the people that I've had the most productive conversations with, it's the ones that I already know are making those contender moves. It, you know, I've already got those data points kind of mm -hmm. built up. So I'm, I'm not spending a lot of time time talking to the guys who are leaning young, talking to the guys who are leaning draft capital, you know, I'll send them a trade offer in case they're interested, but I'm not going to spend all my energy, time and resources trying to get a trade done with them because it's just, it's a waste, right? I think it's really basic, but it's the first data point you have. You have to take it really seriously and, um, and use it to your advantage. All right, Trey, let's move on to your insight. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the main thing I took away from this was uh, just there was some crazy value to be had at the wide receiver position in the later round. So uh, I really think waiting on wide receiver just isn't a bad option at all. And uh, I mean, the positional scarcity at running back and quarterback was uh, was super, super strong in our startup. And uh, I mean, just for example, you know, a lot of this tracks with DLF ADP, but uh, Zach Wilson, right, rookie for the Jets, he went before DJ Moore. He went before T Higgins. He went before Michael Thomas, you know, guys that we are all super high on. And uh, another example is uh, Baker Mayfield, right? So um, he, he's not projected to be super good this year, but he still went before guys like Javante Williams, you know, stud rookie ended up in uh, Denver and uh, in Keenan Allen. And, and all of this tracks with DLF ADP, but it was just kind of surprising, I guess, to me seeing this in real time. So if you do decide to go after those scarce positions early on, there is some really awesome value in the sixth, seventh, eighth rounds at the receiver position. Uh, you know, guys, if you were looking to win now, if you are a contender, uh, Cooper Cup and Robert Woods were both there in the middle of the seventh. Uh, Kenny G was there in the middle of the eighth. And Adam Thielen and Tyler Lockett were both there at the end of the eighth. So, all of those guys, you know, arguably could put up low end wide receiver one numbers this year. On the flip side, if you're thinking, okay, maybe this roster is shaping up to be more of a productive struggle, uh, Chase Claypool was still there in the early seventh. Rashad Bateman, Shoddy B, my 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 one of my favorite rookies this year, he was there at the end of the seventh, and Elijah Moore dropped all the way to the end of the eighth. So the the value uh, at the receiver position in the seventh eighth round was just. That really stood out to me, and um, I kind of like you know the roster construction now, where you know you get your two quarterbacks early, you shore up at least one of the running back spots, maybe you get a high end receiver early, but then you can really round out those starting receivers in the seventh and the eighth round. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Trey. Uh, I was able to nab Curtis Samuel, who I think is a wide receiver three floor, wide receiver two upside. I got him at the beginning of the tenth round, and then I got Tyler Boyd at the end of the 11th round. And I think it's entirely possible that he is the leading fantasy producer for the Bengals this year. So I definitely agree with everything you're saying there. Uh, you, you can wait on wide receiver and still get a ton of value there um, and target those scarce positions early. So I think that's an excellent insight. I just, my only, my only objection here is that not all drafts are the same. And I've been in quite a few, probably like four startups as of and a, and a couple best ball but we won't include those i guess but like been like four startup dynasty drafts lately 
And, you know, I've seen wide receiver, like, go pretty quickly. And, you know, in the the positional scarcity, like, yeah, the wide receivers lasted long in this draft, but they that's an asset in Dynasty where they their shelf lives are a little longer. Right, so, it's very stable asset. So, yeah. like, if all of those get soaked up, like, you, again, like, that brings up the pivot where, um, like, Tarek and I were in a startup recently where all we did was draft wide receivers from uh, round three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like, back to back to back to back to back because literally all of the running backs and quarterbacks were taken in the first two rounds to where we were both, like, well, we're just going to take all of this value and not wait at all and then trade in the future and figure it out. Right, right. Yeah, and since then, I've already traded one of those receivers for Antonio Gibson, right? So, like, you can... you. It's important to soak up value. I think also one of the important things to say here, I totally agree with Trey. I think in general, like, there's a lot of receiver value between rounds five and rounds nine, but it's important for us to note that this is especially true in super flex drafts, right? So when you have that extra important and scarce asset of the quarterback position that gets pushed up to the top four rounds, that makes it extra too true in super flex drafts, right? So obviously receivers are going to become a little bit more scarce in those top rounds if you're if you're dealing in a one QB. So I just wanted to highlight that. And Trey, I I do agree with you. I'm I'm not trying to throw objections in there and say I don't I don't like what you're saying because I I very much like what you're saying. I just, you know, I I think there has to be that caveat where it's like, yo, if everything is going completely backwards, then yeah, start soaking up those wide receivers early. Yeah, I mean, I of course I'm using a, a data point of one here, right? So not all drafts are going to go the same and and depending on your room, uh, you know, things will shake out different ways. But uh, yeah, I, I was really in love with some of this receiver uh, value that did drop to the seventh and eighth round. And uh, it made me feel a little bit better about going heavy at running back in the first four rounds. John, you're rounding us out. What is your insight from our startup draft? Well, in our startup draft, I was drafting from the 12 position. And I have been in the 12 position in the last three startup drafts. Now, not a, not a lot of our uh, listeners know this, but I used to be a math teacher. Do you, have <laughs> any, do you have any idea what 1 over 12 to the third power is? It's 69, baby! <laughs> It's 69. A, a, a 6.9% chance. <laughs> it's not a great likelihood. <laughs> I consider it's myself 9, an expert, an expert of drafting from the 12th position. So, uh, and this, my insight applies not just to the 12th position, but maybe even the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th. And my insight is simply, if you're drafting from the end of the first round, you need to commit to either contending or the productive struggle, struggle for year one early. And the reason is, it's simply not possible to recoup the value drop from missing out on a top six QB by just taking best player available repeatedly. There's just no way to recoup that value from going from, uh, you know, Mahomes to Lamar to whatever you're going to get at the end of that of the first round. There, you're just not going to make it up. So you've got a couple of options. The first option is you need to be active in the first six rounds to make moves. You got to move some future capital. You got to move some other draft draft picks in the startup in order to acquire as many early picks as possible to move into that con contender status. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to. Or you can stand pat, which is kind of what I did, and take young studs at every opportunity to maximize the upside for 2022 and beyond. We call that the productive struggle. Uh, for instance, I took Burrow and Trevor Lawrence at 112 and 201. And so personally, what I would do is I would prioritize QBs and young wide receivers. I'm talking about JJF, AJ Brown, Ridley early, and probably plan to try and grab a stud running back in the 2022 draft, uh, because you're probably not going to be able to get a running back that's a stud after that in like the fifth or sixth round. You're talking about RB2 range. So the point is, Make your choice early and then commit to it. If you wait till the fourth or fifth round and you're ended at the end of the first round, you're like, oh, I should probably be contending. It's already too late because you need to acquire as many draft picks in the first six rounds as possible from that position in order to consider consider yourself a contender. Yeah. And John, the, the thing that I think is really interesting about this is uh, it, it, 
is kind of the opposite of what Mitch is saying, right? Which is to kind of go into your draft and be flexible and be willing to kind of adjust your strategy on the fly. And I think what you're saying is that essentially because you're missing out, almost guaranteed to miss out on those top six quarterbacks, that it kind of forces your hand to, you know, really be proactive about going after the value that you're going to miss out on by falling out of that top six tier. So if that looks like a contender strategy, then you do need to go ahead and let go of some of those future rookie picks to go up and get at least, you know, two guys from that second or third tier at the quarterback position. Right. 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 Yeah. Versus if you think, okay, productive struggle, then yeah, you can like trade back a little bit. Uh, maybe punt on the running back position, like you said, and, uh, you know, just go for value where you can. I just don't think that there is one definition of a contender, though. I think that everybody has a an idea of what it would be, what it would take for a contender. And that's why I said it's important to define that for yourself when you're drafting. Like, if you think that you have the ammunition to do it, then commit to it. And I'm just, I'm saying, like, you can't really know if you have the ammunition until you actually have the ammunition because the draft doesn't always go the way you want it to do unless you manipulate the board in that fashion. We've talked about how being on the ends of a draft is a little bit different, especially if you're not moving around, if you're just kind of staying put. You have to kind of like hope that somebody falls to you for your first pick and then maybe you reach for a guy on your second pick, just like that's usually how the board shakes out. But it's especially true for that 12th pick because the first pick you're getting so much fucking value surplus by picking Patrick Mahomes. Like you're already, your value surplus is so much higher that those reaches that you make later don't necessarily hurt you as much as if you're doing the same thing from the 12th spot. And I I think what, what John is adding to the pot here is that maybe as opposed to Mitch saying like, okay, you need to remain fluid. John is saying that okay, kind of from the first round, you need to decide, am I going to move up to pick six and take Justin Herbert? Or am I going to stay here and do Justin Jefferson and Trevor Lawrence and and kind of sit back until 2022? Yeah, well, I do have one question for John. I think that might clear some things up here. John, do you think that you uh, can be a contender without one of those top six quarterbacks in a startup? So if I'm, I could have, I had the option to take Russell Wilson at the end there and I could have, but I didn't because I wasn't ready to commit to being a contender. If I had taken Russ there, then I'd be saying to myself, yeah, I'm going to be a contender and I'm going to have to make some moves in the next couple of rounds here to make sure that I've get some other assets to be a contender. So Mitch, I mean, let me jump in too. I mean, cause I absolutely think you can be a contender without a top six, uh, uh, dynasty quarterback. And, you know, we've, we've talked about our top six multiple times now, but it's, Mahomes, Herbert, Allen, Murray, Prescott, and Jackson. And so if if you don't have one of those guys in your roster, you can absolutely still contend with a guy like Brady. Maybe if Rodgers shows up at camp in Green Bay, a guy like Rodgers, Russell Wilson, like you can get two or three of those guys from those second or third tiers and, and have enough value at the running back receiver tight end position to still be a contending roster. Like no doubt. Oh. I absolutely agree. I know I was just curious on on John's perspective. I mean, in this specific draft, I took Jonathan Taylor and then Pitts. So like clearly I'm not going I'm not going quarterback early. Tannehill is my first quarterback off the board and I do believe I'm contending. So I you know, it's just it's, it's debatable, Mitch. <laughs> oh. Well, everybody thinks they're a contender right after the startup, right? <laughs> I, I do not think I am a contender now that Cam Akers went down. And I got I was the guy who got lucky enough with Patrick Mahomes. So, hey, you get Patrick Mahomes, Cam Akers goes down. I deserve it. I have no pride. <laughs> okay. All right. That is going to wrap up episode 16 of The Long 16, Game. 16-9. 16-9. We talked about polarizing players. Shout out to Kyle. We talked about uh, startup insights. Also, just want to say really quick, Shout out to Ryan McDowell. He is the godfather. He is the one who came up with the idea of the productive struggle. So every time we say productive struggle, just know that we're citing Ryan McDowell. Okay. Yep. Uh, Wanted to get that in before we closed out. All right, guys. Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Peace. Peace.